Hey everybody, thank you all for tuning in to the Solid Proof Podcast. My name is Amaya, and I'm really happy to be here. I'm going to be honest, I don't know a lot about the sobriety space, but I'm eager to learn more. Every week on Solid Proof, I will be speaking to guests about the highs and lows of their lives, their work, their hobbies, what they ate for breakfast, and sobriety. I want to approach this typically taboo topic with sensitivity, and I hope to destigmatize a facet of society that's so often romanticized. These conversations can be a source of solace for those who are on the road to recovery, and maybe even foster some self-discovery in those who don't believe alcohol is a valid problem. We will be focused on addiction and recovery, but the mental and emotional journey isn't exclusive to sobriety. This week, I'm joined by Rebecca who works within content at Digital Sponsor. She's had such an incredible life and a brilliant perspective on mental health. I think you guys are really going to like what she has to say. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. Um, are you ready to get started? I am. All right, so Rebecca... For our listeners, can you give us a little introduction about who you are and and what you do? Sure. Uh, My name is Rebecca Chuta, and um, I have a private practice called Balbov Counseling Center. And um, so I see clients, adolescents through adult with substance issues um, and or mental health issues, life changes, um, just, you know, trying to tap into who they are and live their best life. Yeah. And so you have your own private practice and my parents, they are both physicians. So I kind of have a, a, a basic understanding of what medicine is like. Um, I imagine private practice work that's really busy. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, I think what I love about my private practice is that, you know, I can make it as creative as I want it to. Um, so I'm actually just about to launch my therapeutic drumming group. My uh, drum group will have about eight or nine people joining that. Um, so I find I try to find some creative ways to, um, you know, help and provide services to people in the community. Um, but I also do uh, brain spotting, which is a neuro-based therapy approach that's very unique and effective. Um, and then I do your kind of traditional talk therapy. Um, as well. So kind of do a little bit of everything. So how has your work changed over the year? I mean, drum groups and, and all of that, how can you do that virtually? Or are you doing it somewhere that's like not telemedicine? Yeah, so um, yeah, in reference to COVID, uh, you know, we've had to get, get creative with that as well. So most of my clients are virtual. Um, I use Zoom. And it's been very effective. Um, you can actually do brain spotting uh, very effectively through Zoom as well, virtually. Um, And then Mondays and Fridays, I see in-person clients who want to be seen, which is probably only about three or four out of my clients. And then actually, yeah, the drum group is going to be in-person at a facility that's large enough so we can, you know, adhere to social distancing and wear masks. And so what kind of challenges are you facing when you, you know, have your talk therapy with your patients over Zoom? I mean, I know that, you know, you, you can hear people's words, but, but the connection, mm-hmm. it's, it's different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely connection issues. Um, and so, you know, ahead of time, I'll, I'll talk to them. We've had to use the phone before, whether we just do phone or FaceTime or some type of other video platform. Um, 
I think another bigger challenge is just the physical space. Um, there's something about sitting in a room with someone. And to me, you know, therapy should be about creating a safe place for the client um, so that they feel, whether they're aware of it or not, they feel safe enough to, you know, really tap into those deeper parts of them that are, that are wounded, that are needing healing. Um, so that's, I think, one of the bigger challenges, um, not having that physical contact uh, in a way, even if we're not touching, it's still a physical contact in a way, being in the same room. Um, and, you know, overall, it's been pretty effective. Um, I also work with adolescents. So I have seen that some of the adolescents prefer that in person. They need more of that one-on-one <laughs> -on -one attention. Yeah. So have you started um, with any patients this year where you see that maybe you are making progress like more slowly because it's not in person? Um, that's a good question. Actually, I don't, I don't think so. Um, I think the ones that are needing in person, I'm able to provide that to them. I have one client with, you know, medical conditions, but I have an air purifier in my office. I wear a mask. Um, and so we try to keep it as safe as possible um, to limit issues due to his medical condition. So, um, you know, trying to trying to think outside the box and really meet them where they are and meet them, you know, whatever their needs might be. But overall, I think I think it hasn't dramatically affected that. But you still wish we could go back. Oh, yes, <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> so I want to go back to your childhood. I mean, you have an experience that really very few can can relate to. You grew up overseas. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, let's see. So I was actually born in Vichy, France, uh, where my par parents were doing language learning. They were learning French. Um, we left there around when I was one. And then we moved to, um, we had a little bit, a few months in Cameroon, West Africa, but for majority of my life, I grew up in Senegal in the West African parts of Africa um, and spent, you know, my whole life until I was 19 there. We would, every four years, we would return to the U.S. where my parents uh, are from and we would spend one year there or here and then we would return back there for another four years. So about three years out of my 19, I spent in the U.S. and the rest I spent in Senegal. Wait, so what was that like, you know, transitioning from two you know, between two entirely different cultures back and forth and an increasingly, you know, volatile period of your life. How do you transition mm -hmm. like that? Um, you know, I think it pros and cons to it. I have learned to adapt quickly to pretty much any situation. Um, and, you know, everything's kind of an adventure to me. And I feel like I can connect with people very quickly and befriend people very quickly because you know I had to learn how to do that if I was going to have those connections you got to do it quick because you might be gone um, and then of course the downside of that I think is you make connections but it's harder to go to get on a deeper level um, and because you're going to lose them so there's a part of you that's always perhaps guarded and being careful that you know you don't get hurt um, overall it didn't affect me too much until I was in high school um, I made some really, really good friends who are still my best friend uh, now in the U.S. at my freshman year when I was here. 
So that was a tough transition, leaving them as a freshman going into sophomore year. Um, and then I made some amazing friends while I was in high school in Senegal, also still really good friends of mine. So having, you know, good friends in different places and having to navigate that. Um, I, I think the biggest challenge was because I went to basically an international school, once we graduated, we all went different places. Most of, most of them went to the U.S. for different schools, but again, other states. And then I had friends from all over the world. So you kind of leave, you know, your entire life, not knowing if you're going to be able to go back and visit and not knowing if you're ever going to see these people again. So I think that was the most challenging experience of it all. So now that you have more autonomy in your life, do you find yourself yearning to, you know, move around and, and see the rest of the world kind of like how you did when you were a child or, or do you want more stability and all of that? Mm. You know, we always joked that there was this two-year itch <laughs> as MKs. MKs was missionary kids or TCK, which is third culture kids. And it's it always seemed to happen every two years, you find yourself wanting to move around. And I, even in college, every year, somehow I went somewhere different. It was Mexico, Czech Republic. I studied in Uganda. I went back to Senegal for an internship. Um, and I, I love traveling. And then, yes, as, as I got married and had children, there was that shift happened where it's like, you know, I want to be in one place. I want to create more consistency for my kids and have more of a habit um, and then even as the kids have gotten older, I, you know, that desire to shift again and be closer to like my family there in Indiana. Um, so there's, you know, different, different stages, I guess, but I still love to travel. It's still um, something I very much enjoy. And so back in Senegal, this was a, the, this was a tiny village, right? So that was part of the move as well. So we grew up, um, for about the thir first 13 years of my life, uh, my time there, we would move from the village, which was, yes, about 200 people, um, from that small village back to the main city. And we would do that every about four months um, going back and forth. So we would do that shift every for four years. And then we would move to the U.S. for one year. And then we would come back and do that again. Um, so we did go back and forth from the village to the city for about 13 years. Did you resent your parents in any way during this time? Because, I mean, like I said, it's, and, and like you said, it's it's crazy to just move around every four months and then move across mm -hmm. the ocean. I mean, what what was your relationship like with your, with your parents then? Mm -hmm. You know, it actually didn't affect me at all. Uh, not that I can remember. I loved, you know, it was a kind of exciting. Like, I loved my time in the village and then we would get excited to go to the big city and have electricity and running water and you know I had friends there and then it was even more exciting to go to America um, this kind of foreign land that seemed amazing um, so younger it didn't bother me as much you know I even around 13 most of my friends were guys I was you know just doing wheelies on a bike and just playing with the guys so I just wasn't really in touch with my feminine side I would suppose I would say no I can I and can relate to that <laughs> so actually it wasn't until around that time when we went back to the city permanently in middle school that I you know just the the change that we all go through as adolescents started to happen and that was more of a struggle because I was like well I don't connect to girls and how do I connect to them and how do I make friends and and 
then yes, you know, the change going back to the U.S. and, and then returning was difficult because I was making those deeper connections. Um, and so, like I said, you know, that freshman year returning to to Senegal from the U.S. was really difficult. It was very bittersweet. I was excited to go back to what I considered home. And I had made these amazing connections that was really difficult to leave. But how do you navigate kind of the imbalance that is, you know, you go back to the U.S. and you were surrounded by people who look like you. And then you Mm -hmm. go back to Senegal and you, I mean, these are people that you know and and you've grown up with. Mm -hmm. But still, there is a little bit of a a divide there. Mm Mm-hmm. So a lot of my friends in Senegal were at the international school and, you know, were European or American, tended to be. Um, I had a, you know, few people um, from Senegal that that I interacted with. Um, and that's actually something I regret, not, not engaging more in the culture. I was very busy at my school with three different sports and school and everything else. Um, so I didn't have a lot of time. Um, softball, soccer, and volleyball. Nice. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I was just about the differences. This actually has come up recently in light of, you know, all the, the just racial, uh, injustice that has just, you know, come up. Um, I had to reflect a lot on that. Like I grew up in a obviously <laughs> predominantly black country and honestly, didn't even know and understand I looked different than any of my friends in the village till I was probably about five years old, which is normal. It's not that's not abnormal for that age. Um, and and just having to navigate, you know, I speak their language. I grew up in their culture and sometimes speak their language better than some of them in the city um, in that that ethnic group. And yet knowing I would never be accepted as them doesn't mean that I was treated badly, just that acceptance, right? That's very important. And then coming to the US, especially in college and realizing that I don't fit here either, you know, Mm -hmm. amongst the Americans and understanding their culture. And so really feeling kind of in limbo of who am I and, you know, where do I belong? That was definitely something I had to struggle with um, quite often. Um, So it, it was, it was an interesting experience for sure. And so are there moments you look back on, particularly like stories or anything that you think and, and you're like, hmm, that, that probably happened because I'm different from the person, the typical person from Senegal. Yeah. Oh, different from the person in Senegal. Uh, or different from the person in the US. Either. Either one. Okay. Um, I think the culture piece is huge. You know, my parents are American. And so I adopted a lot of American cultural pieces from them. And I grew up in a culture that is very different. And so I adopted a lot of those as well. So an example would be, um, well, overall, I think I'm, I'm a very type A person, um, even though I don't know if I fully agree with that term, but the idea of just I want to be on time. I want things done right. You know, all all this rigidity that can happen. And yet in African cultures, especially I could speak to Senegal at least, there's no such thing as time. Time does not really exist in the same sense of the word as in the U.S. And you really just do things when you do them. Um, 
And so learning and having to adapt to accepting things, even when you're wanting them a certain way or expecting them a certain way. So that was definitely one positive that I think I've adapted and, or, you know, learned from both cultures. Um, an example I can think of was in college, um, I didn't have a car and our campus was not walking. You couldn't walk anywhere. Mm-hmm. So I'd asked a friend to borrow her car and, you know, in Senegalese culture, you know, if you, if you have something and a friend of yours asks for it, you, you give it to them, you let them use it. There's not really a question about it. And in American culture, it's, well, this is mine and I can say yes, or I can say no. Like this idea of, you know, individualist versus the, the community aspect. And I remember her kind of asking me all these questions. And I remember myself feeling kind of agitated, like, why does she have to ask all these questions just let me use the car Mm -hmm. and you know looking back and even at that time just thinking through that like I had these expectations because of the culture I grew up with and obviously she has the right to ask questions about her own car why am I using it how long will I have it um but just noticing that I was getting kind of agitated about that so that that's just kind of an example I think of just culturally how I picked up different things um and having to navigate that So about me, you know, I grew up kind of my earliest childhood experiences were kind of all over the States. I grew up, I was born in Melbourne, Australia, moved to Toronto, then lived a little bit in Miami and then Cleveland and then Milwaukee and then grew up Mm. in Omaha, Nebraska. So, you know, and throughout all of those, you know, environments, regardless of where I was, you know, I have brown skin and Mm -hmm. I was always you know especially in Nebraska coping with this this imposter syndrome and you you have Mm -hmm. as well how did Mm -hmm. you kind of figure out where you belonged Mm. um I don't think it's about belonging I don't I think where I'm at now is that it's okay to not belong and there's a beauty in that that it's okay to, to be able to, like, I'm the chameleon, you know, I can mold into any group of people, I'm okay with anybody, um, there's a beauty in that, there's a, there's a gift in that, and um, that that's okay, that's okay, I don't have my people, or I have this, or, you know, this group of sense of belonging, um, and I think it's more about the people that you surround yourself with, and like I said, I have some friends from Senegal that I grew up with since middle school, and then my, my best friend from high school, and then my best friend from college, all of whom I still speak with. So my sense of belonging, it's not a place, it's people. Um, people that understand me, people that support me and help me along my journey. So I think that's where, where I'm at, at least right now, in, the, in that sense of the word. There, there can be a sense of kind of, I think, grief, right? Grief that I didn't grow up in one place that my family's all in one place and I go back and, you know, it's the same house and same people. And there's, you know, there's a sense of belonging in that way too, that I kind of sometimes wish I had, but I think just accepting what we do have and, and the beauty in it. So that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. I was listening to a podcast last week and they were just talking about how, you know, our own uniqueness is so underrated. Like there's nobody Mm -hmm. else in this world who has the same life experiences that I do, who looks the same way that I do. And yet mm-hmm. it's so crazy that all of us are just trying to find a way to be like everybody else. 
Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, people is, is a great way to, to kind of um, contextualize yourself. But did you have any kind of trouble finding those people who, you know, have stuck with you to this day? Because I know that these like the best relationships that you can you can foster are usually the ones that are the hardest to manage you know mm-hmm. we want mm-hmm. to find those people who make us feel good about ourselves but mm-hmm. sometimes that isn't the healthiest i guess is what mm-hmm. i'm trying to say and mm-hmm. and yeah how do you navigate that especially when you're young i mean i would i have made bad decisions and chosen friends who aren't you know who aren't the best for me because they what they represented, I hope that would reflect on what people thought of me, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, I've been very blessed with friends throughout my life and stages. I definitely, I think every stage, I can remember like going to the U.S. when I was in freshman in high school. The first half of it was really rough. Um, and then I met my best friend. Now I would consider her that then as well. And that changed everything. I had that connection. And then from her, you know, there were created more connections with other people. Um, and then I know the stage of starting high school, because I was homeschooled most of my life. Um, and then when we went back to Senegal, we went to, to that international school. And even though I knew people from middle school, it was still hard to build those connections. So at first, again, felt kind of lonely and and same thing when I went to college, first semester was really tough, just transitioning. But it seems like each phase, each area, I was gifted with some really great friends who accepted me for me, right? And encouraged me to be the best I can and, you know, move towards whatever it is that I wanted. Um, so I think it was tough and I had, I, I've been very blessed with, with uh, friends. So that I am very thankful for. Mm-hmm. And mental health struggles. Mm-hmm. Adolescence is where it starts. I'm taking um, I'm taking abnormal psychology right now in college, and and mm-hmm. we're learning all about it. And I was just thinking, you know, we spend our entire childhood imagining how awesome it's going to be when we're finally adults and we have mm-hmm. a little bit of autonomy, and suddenly the world just becomes so so heavy. And you realize, you know, childhood's so cool. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so carefree. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember that. I mean, my, though that, those high school years, those three years in high school at that school in Senegal was the best. I mean, even asking any of my friends that I grew up with in that time, the best years of our life. You know, we went to the beach on the weekends for all day Saturday. We were just constantly at the beach. We just had a lot of fun. And, and, you know, was also during that time that I did have a lot of mental health struggles without realizing what it was, um, which I think is, is what fuels some of my passion for specifically working with uh, teenage girls. Um, I actually have a virtual group going on right now um, with teenage girls with, you know, anxiety, depression, cutting behaviors, self-harm, um, suicidal thoughts, because it's, it's a really tough stage and we don't always, we know, we don't always understand what we're feeling and we don't always know how to talk about it. And that, that was my experience. I didn't know that what I was feeling was not normal. 
-hmm. And it wasn't until afterwards, you know, looking back, it's like, oh, that that was not normal. That was not okay. Um, so just trying to provide that support to to girls now is a passion of mine. And so, you know, do you can you tell me a little bit more about how you know puberty plays into it? Because I I've I've read a little bit about it, but but I want to know if you have any experience with that. Mm-hmm. I feel like I like I said, even up to age thirteen, I was such a tomboy. So it wasn't until probably sixteen that I even had girlfriends that I even cared about what I looked like or, you know, any of that. Um, but no, it's, it's challenging. I think it definitely plays into, and maybe especially girls, I think definitely guys struggle with this too, but just self-image and, and nowadays, especially that I'm noticing working with these girls with social media, it's just yeah. rampant mm-hmm. with eating disorders and just this focus on, on how I look and how I, you know, portray myself um, again, I was extremely lucky with friends in my life that that was not the focus and, um, never was bullied. So I was very, very fortunate in many ways. Um, but for me, I was a very, uh, introspective and self-critical for, I'm still in, but was as a adolescent. And I think, you know, when we talk about just puberty, I think there, there's part of that. Like, how do we, how do we view ourselves and how are we hard on ourselves? Um, and how do we take the information that the world is telling us and what's out here and, um, you know, make meaning with that. Um, so I struggled with that. Definitely. Have you watched the social dilemma? I haven't, but it is my, on my list to watch just, I, I haven't either I've seen the trailer I have to watch it but I'm in the middle of midterm so I can't right now but I know that <laughs> it's gonna make me quit everything and and move out mm. or move somewhere okay <laughs> um so college yeah that a seamless transition where'd you go to college oh no definitely not seamless um I went to a very small school called Milligan College in Tennessee I think at the time that we only had like 500 students for the whole four years very small. Um, I actually wasn't going to go to college. Um, I didn't, I struggled with school a lot. Um, test taking a lot of anxiety, just, I think partially being homeschooled and, and I wasn't really familiar with kind of your formal schooling. So it was a struggle for me. So I wasn't going to go. And, uh, my dad was very tricky. He was like, well, just apply anyway, just in case you change your mind. And of course applied and, you know, ended up going, everybody's going to college. So I did too. Yeah. And my best friend from that year in the U S that's where she was going. So that's where I went, um, because of that. Um, but yeah, it was a very difficult transition. Um, again, I, there was, there was quite a bit that happened in high school, um, including a friend that got killed right before my senior year that was very traumatic for all of us because we all you know very connected and um senior year in high school and then just the idea of graduating and leaving a place you've been your whole life and never knowing if you're going to go back leaving people you never know if you're going to see again um I think all developed into depression that I didn't know was depression and, you know, self-harming thoughts that I didn't even know was not normal. <laughs> so mm-hmm. all of that was going on my senior year and definitely dragged that into 
first semester in college, it was, you know, isolated a lot, didn't engage much, very focused on school. And so struggled with that quite a bit. You know, you got all of that baggage and then you've got the cultural transition. People expected me to know things because I don't have an accent because I, you know, look the way I'd look and, and then I didn't know cultural things. Um, and so there, there were just a lot of just nuances that, that were difficult. Um, and then really the, the biggest transition from that that changed the course of my experience was, you know, making my friends and especially one in particular became my roommate. And that just kind of changed things. You know, I just, I think we go through our journey and we're always looking for connection. I think we are human beings and part of that is needing connection. And when we don't feel like we have that connection, no matter what else is going well, um, it can affect us mental health wise. Um, so, you know, I did get that connection eventually. And that really changed a lot of my experience in college. And we're all on a different timeline, I think. And it's hard to, people just romanticize college so much, I feel like, because, mm-hmm. you know, I go to NYU mm-hmm. and I was moving from Nebraska to New York City. Mm-hmm. And in my head, I had these grand ideas of, oh my God, I'm going to get an apartment with, you know, two of my girlfriends. We're going to be <laughs> just like, we're going to be just like the TV show Friends, yeah. essentially. And then three months into college, I have, you know, no meaningful relationship with anyone I think my life is over and my freshman year in college sucked so bad and I thought Mm -hmm. the problem was with me Mm -hmm. but rather it's it's we're all on our own timeline Mm -hmm. and and you never know who you're gonna find as a friend I think yeah absolutely and so your your virtual girls group now Mm -hmm. I imagine that's really cathartic because you see yourself and in a lot of them Mm-hmm. I want to know how you keep yourself kind of steady emotionally and, and just maintain that you're there to help them. And, and how do you how do you kind of bridge that, like my personal experience versus me helping you? Right. Well, I think it's, you know, partially being a trained clinician that, you know, we, we talk about this and we learn about this, that counter transference, how you see yourself and what the client is dealing with and noticing, being mindful of what's coming up for you and, you know, I work, I do a lot of mind body work. So not just noticing where my thoughts and emotions are, but what am I feeling in the body when I'm thinking and feeling that? Um, Because when we are more aware of ourselves, we recognize that space, right? This is my space and what they're going through is their space. And, and I can both, I can honor both, right? I can honor what's coming up with me and I can honor what's coming up for them and not cross over. (laughs) so you know partially it's being trained because that's what we do we need to be aware of that and trained for that um but I also think that it my experience can fuel my ability to um you know interact and verbalize and express what they're feeling so oftentimes I will say something and they just you know they nod their head and they have this look of yeah that's exactly it Mm-hmm. And that they never been able to explain it, right? But that's it, right? So I think it's using that experience in a therapeutic way and knowing the boundary <laughs> is very important. Have you ever been tempted to cross the boundary? Oh, yeah. I mean, we're human. It's definitely 
and I'm sure I've crossed it, right? But again, it's just constantly being mindful of yourself and where you're at and and asking the question, okay, is is this thing that I want to say, is this because it's going to be therapeutic for that person in front of me and help them move along their journey? Or is it just because of my stuff, my curiosity? (laughs) Okay, so I really want to know, I've always wanted to ask a therapist, have you ever disliked a patient? I have. I have one patient that I can actually say (laughs) that. It was, I don't know if dislike is the word, but just it was challenging to the point of, I just don't, I don't know what we're going to accomplish together. Um, But honestly, I have been so amazed at how much I love my clients. Like I can meet the client and do an assessment and it's just like, just see their humanity and see, you know, we're all hurting and being able to see them on that level um, is just pretty cool. So when you dislike, sorry, (laughs) so when you dislike (laughs) a patient, what do you do? Do you refer them to someone else? Well, thankfully, this one client that I had didn't come back either. (laughs) (laughs) But um, no, I mean, if I did have that type of client, it's, it's never a black and white question, right? It's our answer, I guess. If they're, if I'm having difficulty with them, it's about thinking about why am I having difficulty with them, right? Being mindful of what's my stuff what's coming up and what is their stuff that I'm taking on and okay is are we going to be able to work together to move forward and then also addressing it with them not like oh I don't like you but addressing it in the sense of I notice this dynamic is coming up what are your thoughts and helping to process that through now if it continues and they're you know you're not able to process it through then yeah sometimes you do have to refer out um, but you gotta you gotta try to work through it first very important right right so high school college when did you start did you do you drink I drink yeah occasionally and how has your relationship with alcohol been um mine has been okay um I think there are definitely times where I can notice the desire right to use when you're more emotionally susceptible um and going through tough times, but I think it's, it's just about, again, being mindful of that relationship. I think for me, and is more food related. And I, you know, I strongly believe that it's not about the substance. It's not even about the behavior because the brain is reacting the same way to all of that. It's, you know, substances, food, whatever it is, I believe is a, you know, a symptom of a larger issue. Um, so I think for me, it's that self-soothing and that's the larger issue. What is it that I'm struggling with that I'm needing the self-soothing? How can I self-soothe in another way that's healthier? Um, so, you know, that, that's really my belief on substance issues is, okay, it's a symptom of a larger issue. It's what you're using because your brain knows, that, understands that this is what I use and it, quote, works. Um, so let's get to the deeper issues. And when we do that, then the desire to drink usually starts to diminish a little bit. And we, you know, obviously plug in coping skills and other things to help with that. See, now correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, what you said about how, you know, every substance affects our brain in the same way. I wonder if, you know, the stigma against alcoholism and and alcohol abuse is because 
we america in our culture we normalize alcohol so much and so mm-hmm. people view an addiction to alcohol not really as a disease but rather just you know some sort of weakness or or mm-hmm. an inability to control oneself mm-hmm. and so i, I want to know what you think about that so the way i explain it to clients is i believe that you substances or alcohol can be a disease because it is eventually affecting the brain in a way that it is rewired and your brain is going to keep wanting that substance. That's the disease part. However, the your brain can heal. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, it's not like it's stuck that way. It can heal. Um, now then the next question is, Oh, so do you think I could ever drink or, you know, drink again without having issues? I'm like, well, that's, that's not for me to say, and that's really not that. That's not the focus, right? What's going on? How can we heal the brain? How we can? How can you become more balanced and healthy? And you're going to notice as you do all that, your relationship with that alcohol is going to completely change um, because your brain is now healing and you're well balanced. Um, so, to your question around the stigma, I think. I think I wonder actually if it's kind of the other way around that I've seen more of people normalizing the drinking and you know criminalizing the drug use and to me it doesn't really matter what the substance is right I think we put Mm -hmm. we put value and we label people based on what substance they're using and I don't think that that's really what matters because the substance again is not the issue we put so much emphasis on the substance. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's not an issue and it doesn't mean it doesn't need to change that, that behavior, but let's figure out what's underneath it. That's what's important. No, that makes sense. I mean, you've told me before, like it's, it's all about the, the maladaptive coping mechanisms. Mm-hmm. I wrote that down. Yeah. And <laughs> can you kind of, do you have any patients? Because I know you work within substance abuse. Do you have any like patient stories that you can recall that, are about, you know, someone finally crossing that threshold and understanding that, you know, portion of of substance abuse. Um, Yeah, like in the sense of how I described it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, I just have to be careful with how much I describe. But um, I've had clients who definitely get to a point of, you know, I'm putting so much emphasis on staying you know, not drinking and not being an, or I am an alcoholic and I have to do all these things and I have to stay sober. And the, the emphasis on those things themselves become a barrier um, versus, first of all, I don't believe anyone is an alcoholic or addict. I know that's a very <laughs> strong statement for people, but mm-hmm. this is why, like you are a Maya first. That's who you are. Mm-hmm. You are not lab- you, you, the whole person that you are is not an alcoholic or an addict. And when we do that, we put that as the emphasis. And again, it's a problem and we certainly need to address it, but it's a symptom of a larger issue. So let's get to the bottom of that. Right. So with you are you first, that's who you are. And uh, there's many beautiful things and amazing things about you. This is just a small aspect of you. Um, so I wanted to throw that out there. 
so I have clients who struggle with that. That's their own personal struggle with those, those words and terminology. And so what shifted was then just saying, you know what, I'm not going to drink today. I'm choosing to not drink today because all we are guaranteed is this moment. We, we can't change the past and we don't know what the future holds. So all I know is right now, when we sit in the future and we sit and focusing on like this idea of sobriety, and again, these are certain clients that have addressed it this way and it's helped. I need to work on my sobriety. I have to keep, I have to keep doing this, this, and this, and this. It becomes exhausting and it becomes anxiety driven versus just saying, I just don't drink. I'm somebody that doesn't drink and today I'm not drinking. And now I am this person, I'm a Maya and I'm choosing to not drink. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. And my my question is, for me personally, mm-hmm. I have, you know, trouble with food. Mm-hmm. And in my brain, I think at least 50% of my thoughts surround food. I'm counting everyone's calories at the dinner table. I'm planning out my meals for the rest of the week. Mm-hmm. I, you know, dream about food like it's it's and I weigh myself every day like that's it mm-hmm. it's constantly a part of me and I I'm only 20 I have fingers crossed at least 60 years ahead of me mm-hmm. I wonder you know how do you get it to a point where it's not a small part of you anymore or not mm-hmm. a large part of you anymore mm-hmm. how do you get it to a small part of you hmm it's a good question it's multifaceted um you know I think Number one, it's it's education. It's understanding what's happening in your brain um, when that process is happen, happening, right? Because the brain is doing exactly what it needs to. It sees, it sees food as a threat. It sees a number as a threat, right? It sees whatever that is as a threat. And so it is constantly assessing input. You know, when we use all our five senses, all this information comes in and it starts to assess Okay, is this is this good or bad? And then it, it acts accordingly, right? So we have to understand that it's a, it's accessing that part of the brain, which is your fight or flight sympathetic nervous system. Um, and so we have to education first, and then we have to retrain the brain. We have to understand this relationship that I have with this, and what's happening, and how do I slowly start to change that relationship? It could be, um, you know weighing myself three times a week instead of every day. And, you know, so you start to slowly change these behaviors because what you're describing is, is a habit, mm-hmm. right? You've got your cues, the cues, the thought that lead to a routine. I'm going to weigh myself. I'm going to count my calories. I'm going to plan my week's meals, which leads to reward. What's the reward for you? Are you asking me? Yeah. <laughs> What's the reward? I'm I'm in the I have been incessantly dieting for for about a little bit more than a year now. Mm-hmm. And what's the reward? What what is the feel good? What's the reason for doing those things? Oh my god, this is therapy. Okay. Um <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for me, it's like I've been talking to my therapist about this recently. It's 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 a problem that I'm aware of, but I'm not ready to face it head on. My my goal starting out was I want to feel better about myself, but I am aware that the number on the scale is not going to change that. That's a different problem. Mm-hmm. And it's still a reward, though. In that yeah. moment, in the moment, the brain says, I feel good about myself. This feels good, right? Yeah. Whether your rational brain recognizes that it's illogical, it doesn't matter because that part of the brain is what is activated. So then 
it gets its reward, then you have the cues, the thoughts, then you have the routine, and it just is a cycle, right? So we have to break the cycle. It's, you know, um, what fires together, what wires together, fires together, if you've ever heard that term, right? The neuro, the neurons in the brain, if they are firing together, it's going to create a pathway that that they go, you know, they follow in sync. So that's what's happening. Okay, now I know this, the cues are happening. So that means I have to do this. So that means this is going to happen. We have to change that. We have to change those pathways a little bit. And you do that by recognizing the thoughts, the cues. Oh, I'm having this thought. Okay, I'm going to be aware of the thought. I'm going to let the thought be there. It doesn't have to be everything that's consuming me. And now I'm going to go do something else. I'm going to break the cycle of the, the routine, right? And so as we start to change that, that habit starts to change too. That's um, hard work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But it makes sense. Um, so education, you know, on what's happening in the brain and then slowly trying to retrain the brain. Um, I guess to answer your question, which I don't even remember what the initial question Neither was. Neither do I. <laughs> yeah, I think it was it was just about what do you do? I guess it's How it depends do? on the context. Mm-hmm. But from your your you know external point of view, when you speak to someone, what clues you into the possibility that someone has an addiction that doesn't necessarily you know need to be alcohol related, but like you said, just substance mm-hmm. abuse. How do you recognize mm-hmm. it and? And what kind of tips can you give to people who may not recognize it within themselves? Yeah. Um, and I'd like to just clarify the word addiction because I know that is like one of those words that people are cringe with. Mm-hmm. Um, think of addiction as, you know, it's it's a spectrum. Addiction is just an understanding of what's happening in the brain. That's really all it is. And people have a spectrum of it. Um, addiction, I think, is a, a stigma that we have in this country of, oh, that's a horrible thing. I don't have that, right? It's the untouchable. Um, So, but to answer your question, you know, we look at actually in the DSM, which is what we look at um, within mental health and substance abuse treatment to assess what if somebody has a disorder, that's a really good guide is just to kind of understand um, what's going on. So things like, um, have they been using more than they intended? So if they're, you know, started to you drink and they drink weekly and then 10 years later, later, they're now drinking a six pack every day, right? They never intended for their life to turn into that, right? That's not something they wake up to be, hey, I want to do that one day. Mm-hmm. Um, so drinking more often, um, it's causing issues in relationships, it's causing issues at work or home or obligations. It's, it's causing psychological issues. So a lot of times with alcohol, it can increase depression. Um, medical issues, physical issues, obviously doing things that are dangerous. So driving while using, um, your intolerance increases, so which means that you can drink more or use more than you did before. Um, and if you have withdrawal symptoms and every substance has different withdrawal symptoms. So those are some, some aspects that we look at on a clinical level, um, to see how severe things are. And I don't, I really don't like diagnosing people. Um, I, I don't do it unless it's absolutely necessary. But that list and 11 different criteria can help just gauge. And I, I kind of explain it that way to clients. Like your use is not just about your use. Like it's affecting every aspect of your life. So let's talk about that. 
you know, and do you want it to be that way? And usually the answer is like, well, no, of course, I don't want this problem with my wife. Okay, well, then you're acknowledging that there's an aspect of this behavior that you don't like. So what would you like to work on, right? And, and sometimes it's just, you know, I want to, I want to use less. Okay, let's practice that. Let's work on that. Um, and for those that that's hard to do, now that becomes more information for them that, hey, you know what, I tr I'm trying to stop and I really can't, or, or it's dangerous because I'm having these withdrawals. Um, so then it helps them to kind of come to their own conclusion and, and you know, figure out what, what their goal wants to be. Um, so those, that's kind of how I do it. Like I normalize it in the sense of, okay, this is how it's affecting your life. It's not this big, huge addiction problem. <laughs> uh, people seem to respond to that approach a little better. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. This is great. Do you yeah. have any, like, one lasting message that you'd like to give to our audience? Hmm. Well, what I always tell my clients is that they have the full potential for healing, for wholeness. It's just a matter of learning how to tap into it. I truly believe that. I don't think anyone's broken. I think that we can be wounded and we need healing, but we don't need fixing. We just, the healing part just means we've, we've got to learn and maybe relearn or maybe learn completely new how to tap into what we already have within us. Um, and that's why I love brain spotting, which is the, the neurotherapy approach that I do, because it's, it's really helping them to start to trust themselves and, and allow their brain to heal the way that it needs to. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that's just really cool to see and powerful to see them um, in session, even, you know, that healing process and really feeling empowered. So this is great. Thank you so yeah. much for joining us. And thank you. I want to have you on like next week, but I know that's not possible, but I will be begging you to come <laughs> back. Okay. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. I'll see you later. Okay. Bye. Thank you for joining me. This episode was extra cool because I got the added bonus of a little bit of free therapy at the end. But I think what Becca said about, you know, the universality of addiction and maladaptive coping mechanisms was really insightful you know it's something that we can all empathize with i imagine also that it must be super cathartic to help girls with the same issues she struggled with when she was younger and i think with this episode what i learned was that the healing journey is different for everybody but healing is always possible as always you can begin your journey into sobriety by downloading digital sponsor on the app store and check us out on instagram at digital sponsor underscore. Bye.